The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday the 18th of November. This is the Novavax update we've been waiting for. Dr. Gary Groman addresses pretty much all the questions we may have. This will be an excellent vaccine to add to our national COVID strategy. Dr. Groman, tell us about yourself. Hello, David, and thank you again for having me on your program. I'm a consultant virologist and I've got experience with the TGA looking after immunobiology for 17 years. And since then, I've been working as a consultant for a number of groups, but particularly WHO on flu and uh, COVID. Now, Gary, for many, many, many weeks now, you have been dangling this whole Novavax vaccine in front of me, and I just can't wait to learn more about it. So... Over to you, Gary, as you take us through the newest vaccine to hit our shores and what it really means to us. Well, I think it's pretty exciting having this vaccine come to Australia. It's going to be quite different in terms of a platform uh, compared to the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines. Uh, And just to give you a quick overview, uh, it's an American company that has used this platform before to make influenza vaccines. And... It's a protein vaccine. Uh, It reassembles itself into little nanoparticles. They've added an adjuvant. It will be two doses, 21 days apart. They have been given not quite provisional registration yet, but they've been given a provisional determination notice uh, by the TJ, which means they can apply for provisional registration. And it's expected that will go through sometime this year, which would mean that 51 million doses Uh, will be made available to Australia as soon as possible. And I'm assuming some of those will come by the end of the year. Where is it manufactured? It's manufactured uh, in several locations in Europe uh, and and Asia. Uh, And it's quite practical. It can be stored and transported and handled uh, at standard refrigerator temperatures. It uses, as I said, this nanoparticle technology, which contains the full length SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, and they have their own adjuvant called Matrix M1. And these have been studied very well and in great detail in phase one, uh, two, and uh, three clinical trials. So just to give you a flavor, the preclinical trials were done in baboons and mice, and all levels show high levels of immunogenicity, neutralizing antibodies, and so on. Uh, And then they went into phase one clinical trials and using... Uh, small numbers of people in Australia, in fact, mm-hmm. um, and some in the US. And these trials went particularly well for safety. It was only a small number, 131 or so. The phase two clinical trials done in the US, uh, nearly 1,300 adults, 18 to 84. Again, the safety profile was excellent. Immunogenicity, very good. And then the phase three clinical trials have now also been completed. The safety side of it was positive, very few issues, but I can go into more detail on what people did experience, if you like, because the data is now published. And 
uh, there were also phase three done in the UK and South Africa. Uh, the South African one did include some HIV positive and negative patients, and uh, it, it also showed quite good efficacy. And so they were looking at 96.4% efficacy in the phase three clinical trials in the UK against all strains, mm. which was really quite remarkable. So, and, and they were also showing 100% protection against severe disease, that being uh, defined as hospitalization and death for both these strains. So that I, I, I think has been extraordinary. This is against the alpha and the delta strain. Uh, on, on that particular study. In South Africa, for HIV-positive patients, they had 49.4% against the beta variant and 60% against the um, delta variant. So uh, this, I thought, was excellent. Uh, but again, more importantly, in terms of prevention of disease, uh, there's 30,000 people were involved in their PREVENT-19 study in the U.S., and I think some done in Mexico as well. And again, they showed 90.4% efficacy, 90.4%, uh, which was really quite excellent. And again, 100% against moderate and severe disease. They also showed in that study for high risk populations, people over 65, people with comorbidities and so on, they had a 91% efficacy. I mean, all this is really you know, miraculous data in a way and really, really positive. Um, and, and that was uh, very, very good to see. And it's published, if people want to take it further, British Medical Journal, New England Journal of Medicine uh, have got most of the studies there pu published uh, against the adult and older adult uh, age groups. I should say, how does it work? Uh, what makes it different? So this is called NVX-COV2373. Uh, I'm sure they'll come up with a better name than that by the time they get to market. But uh, nevertheless, that's what you'll find in the literature if you do want to Google it. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Well, hello, my name is uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist. And I especially like to talk about uh, vaccination and the prevention of vaccine-preventable diseases. There's a very real risk that a whole bunch of viruses will be imported, but influenza is the most concerning. Suddenly, when we shut the borders in March 2020, flu went away. And we haven't had a flu season now for two years. And that is really, really important because there's no natural immunity out there uh, nearly as much as there was. And also, the influenza vaccination rate in 2021 was really quite low. People were so busy getting themselves COVID vaccinated, they didn't get their flu jam. So the combination of two really quiet flu seasons, very quiet in Australia, and a poor level of vaccination in 2021 against influenza <laughs> means that there's a great many people who are much more susceptible to influenza than usual. And I would predict that we'll get at least a moderate season and probably a big flu season. 2017 and 2019 were both big influenza seasons in Australia. We've now had two quiet ones. I would predict fairly strongly that we're due for trouble in 2022, and it's probably going to start early in 2022 as well. So what we do have already is a lot of vaccines from last year 
against influenza in people's fridges. Now, because flu hasn't been transmitting, it also hasn't been mutating. When flu is in anyone's body, it can change its spots within a couple of days. It's an RNA virus that mutates very easily. A COVID takes more like two weeks in a chain of transmission to get a meaningful mutation. Flu takes more like two days. So because flu has not been transmitting, it won't have mutated terribly much. And so the vaccine that we've had all year and in our fridges still, if we suddenly got a surge in December, January, people who are at risk, especially 65 and above chronic medical conditions, they may well benefit from a flu jab, a booster, especially if they didn't have one last year, if they forgot. So those flu jabs in your fridge might actually turn out to be useful in uh, December, January, if we suddenly get the surge that I'm worried we might have of influenza. And then we'll have new flu jabs available from March. And they, of course, have been updated and uh, they would be appropriate to use from March. So this spike protein, remember it's a full length genome, uh, is stabilized uh, and engineered into baculovirus, an insect virus. That's grown in insect cells. Uh, and then the spike protein is expressed from those cells uh, and it assembles in these nanoparticles. Uh, and those nanoparticles um, are then added to an adjuvant or vice versa. Uh, and then that is used uh, as the vaccine. So in simple terms, uh, that's how it works. So it's using a baculovirus to express the protein, goes into an insect cell line, that's expressed and purified and assembles uh, as nanoparticles for the vaccine. I mean, it's just personal comment. I, I think the way, uh, one of the reasons it's so successful is that there's more three-dimensional exposure of the protein to the immune system. So it does give you a better immune response. Their studies have involved very large numbers, around about 30,000, as I mentioned before, and they've all been RCTs, so they've had placebo controls. The main side effects have been what you might expect, tenderness, pain, and swelling. Some systemic symptoms, I should say, fatigue, headache, muscle pain, malaise, joint pain, and very rarely nausea, fever. Uh, but these are self-limiting, median duration, one day, except for muscle pain, where the median duration is two days. So I think all that is very positive. I think one of the most exciting bits from a virologist's point of view anyway, are the antibody responses, the IgG responses. So you really do get huge increases after the second dose, which last 189 days. And at 189 days, they've done experiments already to boost and they've shown a 4.6-fold increase compared to primary vaccination. That is enormous. So it goes even higher than what you got on the second dose. And that, I think, is extraordinary. That's what's going to make this a particularly good booster. And this, I think the results here have been very clear. It's, that's not only the 18 to 59 group, but also the 60 to 84 group have shown exactly the same thing and an increase of 5.4-fold in the 60 to 84 group. Again, very exciting news. So obviously, it's going to be a great vaccine uh, in terms of its efficacy, protection and safety. It will be as good as what we've got now, at least. But the only caveat on all that is that we need to see real world data, of course. So we have to wait for registration 
and then the real world data to uh, come from that. But the neutralization titers against other types of coronavirus, alpha, beta, uh, gamma, and delta are also very, very good. So I think we're looking at uh, a, a potential game-changing vaccine uh, yeah. from uh, that point of view. Now, our whole sort of psyche now is shifting to boosters. We have so many people vaccinated here in Australia. So how will this vaccine be used? Well, that really is up to the TGA followed by ATAGI and government policy. But I'm assuming it will be used as a vaccine first dose, second dose, and also as a booster for people who have already had uh, AstraZeneca and the Pfizer, if they wish. Um, Pfizer, of course, is a recommended booster at the moment. So I think this will give us just more uh, vaccine in, in our arsenal and we'll be able to offer it to people. And, and maybe it'll be this kind of vaccine that might help get people over the line if they have doubts for one reason or another about AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccine, this being a protein vaccine and a more traditional platform, if you like. There are a few gaps, I should say, before going on. One is the paediatric population, uh, but work is being planned. So they're going to look at 12 to 17-year-old adolescents, over 2,000 of them, and, but we won't get the results of that for some time. Uh, and also pregnant women. I'm not sure work's been done in that area. Uh, if there has, I can't find it, but I presume that will also be on the agenda. But it may not be necessary because work in that area has been done uh, with nano flu, the influenza version of the same platform, and there have been no issues. So I wouldn't expect any issues there. Perhaps the most exciting thing, David, is their combination vaccine or their plan for combination vaccine development, which is underway. The idea being that you would get both vaccines at once and both flu and COVID at once. And obviously you would do this prior to the winter season, which works in really, really well with the COVID booster strategy that we have now. I know you can get a booster now, but uh, for a lot of people, they would be able to get a booster say around about March, which is of course when you would normally get flu as well. And in the future, a vaccine like this, where you're combining COVID and flu at once in a single shot, a booster for both, if you will, would be, I think ideal in terms of rollout and practicality and cost and so on. So the proof of concept is there. UK phase three coordination uh, study has been done. It's a sub-study that's been completed. Uh, so the viability has been demonstrated of this idea. And the preclinical development has also gone particularly well with high immunogenicity titers to both. So that is all very, very good news. Uh, the antibodies last 189 days, which will take us easily through the winter season and well into early summer uh, before you would then get the next shot, say, I'm just presuming it would be March each year to tie in with the flu program. <laughs> so that I think is also going to be another unique thing about the Novavax platform. And um, more to be announced, I guess, but I think, uh, virologists and vaccinologists are pretty excited about the approach and they are also capable of making or updating uh, the vaccine for a new variant if one does arise or when it arises 
Uh, and that would take them probably about 12 weeks in my estimation. For mRNA, probably less, probably six weeks uh, if you were to look at the mRNA platforms. So I think we have an abundance of blessings here when it comes to vaccines, David. We are in a really good position. I know we were all rather nervous a year and a half ago, uh, but I think not only has Australia done particularly well in vaccine uptake, but the companies have done extraordinary work, all of them, uh, in producing these vaccines. All of them work particularly well in terms of efficacy and effectiveness. Uh, data still to come out about the Novavax, but everybody's pretty positive about this. And we're now moving towards the boosters. We're now moving towards maybe a single shot. And this all now starts to make sense. And I think will be a lot more palatable uh, to people in the community if it does all go this way. Already, um, Gary, this sounds better than ever imagined. We were very concerned with some of the more serious and rare um, complications of AZ and Pfizer, you know, the, the um, TTS, the um, marketitis. And you mentioned that most of the side effects seems to be local and very transient and mild systemic side effects. Were there any more serious problems reported with the Novavax? No, not at all. And we've not seen it with the influenza platform either. And it's, you know, these side effects like the clotting and the uh, myocarditis for the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer respectively are very, very rare. So that's the first thing. And secondly, you wouldn't see them necessarily in phase three clinical trials, yeah. uh, even though they're 30,000, 40,000. Uh, people now here again we've got large trials 30 to 40,000 we've got a good safety history of the platform hundreds of thousands uh, and we don't see any serious adverse reactions so none at this point are expected but as I said before we do still have to wait for real world data because this okay. is when these things usually um, surface these very very rare adverse events so it's a bit of a wait and see, but I, you know, I think we can be incredibly confident with all the vaccines. These things, if they do arise, are extraordinarily rare. They're also treatable. Uh, blood clots and the myocarditis are, in fact, treatable. Nobody should uh, die of these things, but we don't see it at all so far in the data for the Novavax uh, product, and we've not seen it in the past for their nano flu product either, which is the same platform. So it's uh, looking very, very positive. As I mentioned before, the systemic symptoms are fatigue, headache, muscle pain, malaise, joint pain, and rarely nausea and fever. Uh, so that is really excellent. And in terms of grading them, grade one, two, and three, three being the worst, the grade threes are very rare indeed. Um, uh, so that's really excellent. Um, so I don't expect there to be any issue compared, say, to other vaccines that we take in the area of systemic infections. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Pertussis vaccination is key for adults. We should all get a pertussis vaccination every 10 years. Anyone who will be in contact with an infant under six months old, healthcare workers, childcare workers and travellers should get vaccinated every 10 years. Pertussis can cause severe complications in people with existing conditions, such as cardiac disease, asthma, COPD, 
diabetes and obesity. Protect against pertussis. Gary, is it possible that over a period of six months, a year, we may see our vaccine strategy change somewhat from having multiple vaccines to a more homogenous uh, vaccine that can be used, as you said, uh, say in March, that protects people from both the flu and COVID? Look, I think that's quite likely, and I think this is the direction we need to go. There will be second-generation vaccines, though, for COVID, and there are a number of groups researching these. And they may and are expected to be better than the current vaccines uh, that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second generation vaccines should hopefully bring us up to 100% protection against hospitalization and death. But I get the feeling that Novavax might be there already. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the others are going to be very close to that anyway, certainly in the late 90s. So we're in a very good position mm. um, in, you know, we're spoiled for vaccines now. Uh, and hopefully we will get 85, 90% uptake of these things for double uh, vaccination. And, and that will be excellent for the country. Uh, I think we've talked about before, it's, you know, we're all in the one boat. We also need to make sure that our neighbours in the region are also vaccinated and try and you know, look after Papua New Guinea, the islands, the Pacific, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, where people don't have vaccine. It's very important to get them vaccinated as well to the same level to ensure that variants don't arise from those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously to protect everybody there too. So we need to look further than our own borders and ensure that everybody in the boat is vaccinated. It is a global problem, not just a local one, but locally we have done extraordinarily well. Um, we have more vaccines than we could possibly need now. Uh, and with 51 million doses of Novavax coming in, that really should be a game changer. And it's going to be a combination of vaccines. And although we haven't spoken about them, the new antiviral drugs from Pfizer and Merck that seem to be very specific and highly effective should really uh, start to dampen the effect of this pandemic and possibly bring it to an end. Uh, strong words, I know, but this is how pandemics come to an end. It's through vaccination, natural immunity and appropriate treatments. And I suspect that it won't be too long before we can bring the pandemic to an end, but it would rely on uh, vaccination for most of the globe. That would be important. I I suspect, uh, Gary, the fact that we have a glut of other vaccines and more Novavax coming, it bodes well for us to share our vaccine and improve vaccine equity in our region. So that's the first thought. The second, however, is that if Novavax is going to be used probably more uh, because it seems to be highly effective and safe, the, the real question is about supply. Will there be enough supply going into the future? Well, COVID has certainly hit supplies and Novavax uh, were hoping to supply into Australia earlier, but uh, were not able to, as I understand it, because ships were late and equipment was hard to get and, and so on. And this is something, you know, affects us uh, here in particular when, you know, boats can't come in or shipments can't be placed via airways then certain activities have to cease temporarily. And as I understand it, Novavax had trouble uh, obtaining certain things important for their manufacture 
so they couldn't supply as they would like. But they are uh, now supplying. So I think they're capable of making about 150 million doses a month. Okay. And that's um, really quite a production capacity. Of course, you know, add to that the the mRNA vaccines, the AstraZeneca style of vaccine or the viral vectored vaccine, including Johnson and Johnson there, uh, including Moderna as well for the mRNA. And, and, you know, there are millions and millions of doses that can be made per month. I haven't calculated how many, but it must be almost half a million now uh, that could be possibly made and distributed all around the world. And I really hope that happens uh, because it's, you know, it, it's really is up to uh, the wealthier nations like Australia, Europe, US and so on to try and get vaccine to the countries that simply can't afford it and to look after the regions. And, and I know Australia's do, doing that. Some 3 million doses were donated to Cambodia this week. For example, we've donated at least a million doses to Papua New Guinea uh, and other places. This kind of strategy is really important, not only for those countries, but for Australia as well, and also everybody on the planet, because it will help ameliorate the spread and the rise of variant viruses. And fortunately, we haven't really seen too many variants since Delta. I think the reason for that, David, is that uh, Delta has a very low infectious dose, and it's highly infectious for that reason. But for a virus to mutate and get even a lower infectious dose to knock out Delta would be extremely difficult. So I expect Delta to be around for a long time. We've seen other variants like Mu and Epsilon, Iota, uh, arise, but they haven't gone anywhere because Delta really is taking up the space. Okay. So. I don't expect it to change, except Delta will change within itself through point mutation. I don't expect there to be a major shift, so to speak, as you see in influenza. It's going to be more like a drift if you could use influenza terms uh, to uh, describe this just by analogy. So more point mutation, we see them every day through the Gizeh databases, um, uh, something virologists look at all the time, and you see variants come and go. So many have come and gone since Wuhan, Wuhan appeared, and Wuhan itself only accounts for less than 1% now of the viruses in the world, whereas Delta is between 94 and 100%, depending on what part of the world you're talking about. Uh, 94% in South America, 100% in uh, the Australian region and uh, uh, the US, mm -hmm. uh, Northern America, and so on. So uh, we've seen Delta knock out Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. Uh, without issue, and uh, uh, it's certainly remained the dominant variant around the world. Gary, do you anticipate that we'll be having, say, a COVID-type vaccine every year for a very long time? Or, as you said, if it comes to an end, do you see a time when we will stop having to give ourselves COVID injections? No, I, I think it would be wise, certainly for the next five years, uh, to make sure that vulnerable groups, so anybody over 65, for example, um, received a booster vaccine uh, to uh, ensure that hospitalizations and deaths uh, didn't occur or were kept to a minimum. We will always have a group, of course, that will not get the vaccine, and we need to look after them too as best we can, and they will be the ones at the most risk uh, of of these viruses, both flu and COVID. 
So I think we have to start realizing that, yes, we can live with COVID, we can just like we live with influenza. It's probably just going to take the one shot per year. Um, if you're traveling, I guess you might opt to take a booster. But if you're in Australia and not traveling, uh, then um, I think one shot a year will probably be enough, particularly if you have immunity after 189 days and then it starts to drop off. That's a very long time. Um, and Novavax seems to give the best duration of immunity at this point as well, although we do need more data to assess that. And we also need more data to assess the 12 to 17-year-old group and maybe the under 12s in due course, although I don't think they have any plans for that. So having this as a booster for adults and particularly vulnerable adults and people with underlying disease and so on, and people over the age of 65 or 70, I think is very, very important. And I think that, uh, that vaccine, those boosters will be with us uh, for some time, okay. at least five years, I imagine. Personally, I don't expect the pandemic to last more than uh, two or three years from here. Most pandemics last about four or five years in total before they uh, disappear. That was exactly what you said very early on, Gary, five years. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, and I, I still stick to that. Because, and uh, we're seeing cases less and less, fewer and fewer. And natural immunity will also increase right around the world. Uh, and um, when you look at graphs, they're incredibly stark. There's, you know, if you look at the zero to 17 age group, there are very, very few cases. There are very, very few deaths, zero in Australia, or maybe one in a sort of 12 to 17 year old area. But, um, uh, and all the deaths are in the uh, older age group and increasing markedly, uh, 60, 70, 80, 90, markedly. So vaccination is very, very important for those age groups. Mm. And when you look at cases, the case, it goes almost the other way around. Most of the cases are between the 18 and 39 year old group. Um, they're more social, they're more interactive, uh, they're going to work, they've got families and so on. So it's not surprising. Uh, and they are the ones really that are spreading it throughout the community. So that's why it's important to vaccinate adults as well. And, and then of course, older adults. And then of course, we've got our special groups uh, that are immunocompromised and so on, or have other conditions. Uh, we have our indigenous groups as well. And the immunocompromised and Indigenous groups, our vaccination rates are still a little bit too low, and we need to concentrate uh, on those groups where uh, the you know, percentage is still falling below 50 60%. Very, very important. And, of course, there are a couple of states in Australia that are still lagging behind, and it will take time to get, say, West Australia and Queensland up to that 80 90% mark. But it will happen in time, but it may not happen, I suspect, until about March next year. So there are two issues in my mind. Uh, 189 days sounds pretty good, but yeah. I'll be really looking out for what the immune response is after a year, because it looks like if you're going to do boosters every year, we like to maintain our immunity for the year. And the second group that you did, <clears throat> a group you did not mention, of course, are our school-aged kids. Uh, I think that's another population that really needs a bit of work done. Yeah, look, in terms of the 189 days, David, um, it's a question of timing, I think. And I think the most dangerous time is through our winter spring period, just like flu. Okay. And, and that's why I think it's so clever of uh, Novavax in this case, and probably others, uh, to uh, consider a joint vaccination 
combining both the flu and the COVID-19 vaccine. That really does make sense. And giving it around March, April makes sense because we're going into the winter period is when people uh, tend to congregate maybe more indoors and so on. We see this uh, with winter viruses in general. Uh, They tend to spread from person to person a lot more easily. And as I've said before, maybe too many times now, David, it's also important, uh, particularly in closed areas, for people perhaps to really consider wearing masks and so on. I know I will during the winter period if I'm in a shopping centre. It would just make sense to use hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, wear a mask until the virus really starts to disappear. Where I live in Canberra, there are very few cases now, so people are beginning not to wear masks and uh, so on. But it is important not to let down our guard. We do have to continuously mm-hmm. be careful, particularly if you're an older person. So wearing masks does, in fact, make sense using sanitizers and so on or minimising your movements where possible. In terms of the younger children, 12 to 17, there's been quite a push for school-aged children, they do interact with older people, obviously, and their parents and schools and so on, but they don't have the level of severity that adults have. The reason for that, I believe, is they don't have the population of ACE2 receptor sites. Uh, so they don't get infections nearly as often. And if they do, they're generally subclinical uh, and they don't get overt disease. And certainly very rarely do they end up in a hospital unless they've got underlying disease themselves. Then it's a different story. And so we see overseas children with malnutrition, high numbers of COVID. Uh, in, if you look at the US uh, and we see obesity, diabetes, issues like this or people with cancers, then the numbers certainly increase. But in Australia, we're not seeing you know, large numbers of cases and we're not seeing large numbers of cases with symptoms, let alone those that need treatment and hospitalisation. As for the younger age group, 5 to 12, I think it's very debatable. I I think there's an an argument, well, maybe that vaccine could be used to help those get over the line who are unvaccinated, adults, I mean, and also they could be used as boosters, and importantly, they could also be donated to other countries. Mm -hmm. I don't really think we have an issue with that five to 12 year old group, but I can understand the sentiment in the community to want to vaccinate that group, but they are not a group with disease burden. And normally we use vaccines to control disease burden. That's the first question. And we're not doing that if we just decide to give it to five to 12 year olds, because there is no disease burden there to speak of. The disease burden is in the 60 plus year olds or people with underlying disease. Certainly for child Uh, was traveling with their parents overseas or uh, had underlying conditions or uh, was immunocompromised, and clearly they should receive a vaccine, assuming TGA, uh, ATAGI, and the government approve it. Gary, that was a wonderful update. Do you have any final messages for our listeners? Look, I I think um, we can all be very, very confident that uh, vaccines will solve this problem and bring the pandemic to an end, but it can't do it by itself. It, uh, vac- vaccines need to go to everyone and there are various ways. For example, people can donate um, uh, through UNICEF, for example, uh, so that other people can also get a vaccine. We had an initiative in the Immunisation Coalition of Giving Forward to uh, Give Back 
uh, uh, meaning that, yes, okay, I'm getting a free vaccine. Well, I'll donate to UNICEF $10 so somebody else can get a vaccine overseas. It's little initiatives like that that will really help. Uh, so everyone uh, can participate in a program like that. And you'll find all that on the UNICEF website or the Immunisation Coalition website. These are important initiatives. We have to understand we are all, in fact, in the same boat, and we need to hopefully get 80% of the globe vaccinated or, or more. That's very, very important. And I, I do think I have to quote my mantra again, I'm afraid, uh, that it's so important, David, that uh, we don't drop the ball when it comes to just some simple common sense restrictions and awareness, a little mindfulness, if you will, uh, on this issue. And sure, wear a mask when you need to, wash your hands as often as you can, and simply be aware where you're going, how crowded is it, uh, what are the numbers uh, going on in that particular place in terms of COVID, and uh, understand that, okay, you might be vaccinated, you might be double vaccinated, but you can still carry the virus. You can still pass it on. The chances of doing so are less, but it's still possible. So it's so important, uh, even during these high rates of vaccination, that we consider this. And, um, you know, if you're catching a train, it's no big deal to wear a mask. Or if you're catching a plane or going into a crowded place, it's no big deal to wear a mask. And it's certainly easy to get vaccinated. We're very confident now with the safety of all our vaccines. And, um, and bravo to the companies in particular for doing that extraordinary work uh, together with their various researchers in academic institutions. And it's been quite, quite a story. And I think one that will go down in infectious disease history uh, to produce such clever vaccines in such short amount of time, uh, so quickly, uh, so quickly, really for the planet, um, and uh, it's been an extraordinary achievement. Well, Gary, I once again thank you for your words of wisdom and for sharing with us this update on Novavax. Thank you very much, David. You're very welcome. It's always good to talk to you, Gary, and I wish you a very good day. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.